This is the festival day of Theravadan Buddhist day of Magga Puja. The third full moon in the lunar calendar. And this in Thailand is highly celebrated. And Wat Papo, when I lived there, and, and when they established Nanachat, many people would come on that day, disciples of the different monks from branch monasteries would assemble in this tradition. And they were all arhats, 1,250 arhats at the time of the Buddha. At the time of Lung Pacha, I don't know how many were. So this brings the subject of arahants and 1,250 arahants, and they weren't really ordained yet, or they were just recently ordained. So due to listening to the Buddhist sermon, they attained this supreme understanding of reality. In uh, Pali terminology, reality is Dhamma. Dhamma is, you can translate as reality. Ultimate reality, absolute reality, you can add these superlative adjectives, but reality is here and now. And consciousness is real here and now. So when we take refuge in the Dhamma, we're taking refuge in reality here and now. So it's a very, you know, it's a ceremony we have in this tradition, but it's much more, you know, when you practice meditation according to the Dhamma teachings of the Buddha, then that you realize this for yourself. And as it stands now, most of you don't, don't know reality. You think the real world is the sensual world that we experience through the body and the senses. So people say, uh, you know, the real world, the world is not real. The world that we see here, smell, taste, touch, and feel with our bodies, our senses is not ultimately real. Its very nature is impermanence, changing, anicca. And so this, in our lives as Buddhists and in meditators' practice, we need to keep reminding ourselves, are you really what you think? Are you your thoughts? And these are good questions to ask yourself. Are you really what you think? Are you really what you believe? Are you really a human body? Are you really the body? Are you really a woman or a man? And these are questions that stimulate this awareness because asking yourself questions you can't answer it right away. You have to reflect. Am I really a man? 
And according to the view of most Western societies is your reality is your body and your personality. The real world is out there. And sometimes we're accused of not living in the real world, living as Buddhist samanas in a monastery is not the real world. Because to most people, the real world is what they see and experience through their senses. And what they believe and have been told is the real world. So I've asked myself this many times. I'm investigating. Dhamma Vichaya is a factor of enlightenment to really investigate. Do you take for granted that you are the physical body and that, that you're experiencing at this very moment? And who witnesses? How do you know you have a body? Because consciousness is a form. When it's born, it becomes separated from the mother who is conscious and no doubt in the womb we were conscious but we didn't have any name or memories or emotion we just felt heat and cold and so forth the experience of that the mother was experiencing would be pretty much our experience So consciousness is the primal background, the ultimate reality in which the forms manifest. So this is what wise human beings conclude when they investigate life. So when we meditate, when we practice meditation, I like to use the word bhavana, which is a Pali word, because in English, meditation is a kind of generic term for any kind of mental training. So that is good enough to use. But bhavana is really the investigatory experience that we have of investigating the body, the feelings, the memories, thoughts, emotions, the senses themselves, the senses in the body, the objects of the senses. The Satipatthana Sutta gives very definite instruction on how to do this. To investigate this winter's retreat, when we established uh, years ago here at Amravati, the winter's retreat, it was because of the English winter, Northern European climate. It's a time where most people find it difficult to travel and monks have to stay in one place. You know, it's better, you don't want to go on too long out in the cold weather. So the three months, first we had it just one month in January, then extended it to February and then March. 
because the climate, the weather, the scenery around us tends to be much more quiet. English winters are like this. They're, they don't have a lot of noise or sound. The trees lose their leaves, the flowers don't grow, and everything becomes much more pale, not so colorful, not so attractive to our senses. And so this is a superb time to go inward, to look at the internal. So Upanayaka Dhamma means to go inward, not look for the real world through your eyes or through your beliefs, your acquired conditioning, but through direct experience. So then, you know, it's really important to realize Dhamma has no language. We think of Pali as a Dhamma language or Sanskrit, but these are created languages by human beings. They arise and cease. So even the wise teachings of the Buddha are impermanent. But they are not meant to be permanent. The Buddha wasn't advising us to grasp the teachings, the words and the scriptures, but to use them for investigation. Sati, Dhamma-Vijaya, the first two factors of enlightenment. It's right there at the very beginning. So for me, meditation over these years, or bhavana, has been this investigating inwardly as I experienced life living in Wat Pong for many years and then in other branch monasteries and then here in the UK because the place doesn't really make that much difference. Once you have the right direction, if you're looking for the perfect monastery, and this is many of us have tried to find perfect situations when we get tired or we don't like the, or we see things we don't like about the present place we're in, then the tendency of the personalities to think of a better place to go. But in terms of investigation, this tendency to seek a monastery where everything is what you want, I guarantee you'll never find it because monasteries are impermanent. They're imperfect. That's their very nature. The the changing world of the senses its very nature is unsatisfactory, impermanent. So it has peak moments. We fall in love with somebody and then we fall out of love with somebody. We like to be praised, receive accolades and awards, and we don't like to be criticized and disparaged or rejected. But whatever's happening to you, whether you're rejected or praised, this is still bhavana. It doesn't matter whether you're really being rejected or praised, given awards, accolades, 
or you're despised and rejected. These are conditioned, impermanent conditions that we can be aware of. They arise and cease. So forbearance, patient endurance, is a necessary sine qua non condition for bhavana, for meditation. In my experience, living in Watpapong, just as I've explained many times, the, the adjustment to different culture, learning another language and diet, and everything was experience of frustration or irritation. I felt attracted to Watpapong. I felt a kind of innate trust in Lung Po Cha as a teacher. But in terms of personality, this was a totally bewildering experience, living in a Thai forest monastery in a remote part of Thailand and learning another language. And that was very confusing because the dialect in Northeast Thailand is very different from the dialect in Bangkok. Thai is a tonal language, so, you know, in, in English, the tones don't matter. We use emphasis, like if we want to emphasize a word, but the tone, where English words don't have definite tonal qualities. And so you have to open to a different language style rather than Western Latin languages or Germanic languages. So this can be very frustrating and kind of feelings of despair and doubt and wanting to leave or go back home where everything is familiar. These were not absent from my mental states during those years. But Lumpur emphasis on bhavana, on Dhamma Vichaya, he was constantly giving desanas about it and how to witness and investigate what you're feeling. And the thing I really loved about living with him was he wasn't telling me what I should be feeling. He wasn't telling me how to behave or putting me in a difficult situation in which I have to just imitate another monk, another Thai monk, or Lung Po Cha himself. He was advising me to witness what I'm actually experiencing in the present moment. And then you ask yourself, what is aware of your feelings in the present moment? When you feel offended, by somebody. What does that feel like? And that takes patient endurance because usually we get carried away with our habits of feeling rejected or bewildered or disappointed and we carry on like that or we distract ourselves. But in Bhavana, we're actually looking at this feeling of being offended. And that takes patient endurance. And 
if you really just willing to accept, endure, embrace the feelings of the moment, then you realize their cessation because they are very impermanent. So when a feeling of being offended ceases, what's left? If you're not thinking of something else to do or who to blame or blaming yourself or whoever you feel offended by is conceptual proliferation. It's getting caught up in our thinking mind, very personal attitudes that we should forgive, let's not be petty and mean-hearted. We should just spread loving-kindness, the skillful, positive thoughts that we might cherish doesn't make any difference, and on and on like that. So the intellect gives you a lot of good advice, but the intellect doesn't feel offended. It's the emotions that you're witnessing to, to the feeling of the present moment. And the intellect saying, just grin and bear it, stiff upper lip, get over it, don't make a scene, and on and on like that. That's the intellect, which has no feeling at all. But we must remind ourselves that we're not what we think or what we believe. We're not the emotions that we experience, but we're the witness, the puto, the witness to the emotions. So what is a witness that doesn't have a language? It's not a critical witness, it's not a judge. Judges have very definite standards of right and wrong, good and bad. So on the intellectual level, it's very good at making value judgments about ourselves or others, right or wrong, good or bad. But Dhamma has no language again. It's the reality of consciousness that we're experiencing all the time that we learn to take our refuge in. It's our true home, our real home, where we abide out of seeing the futility of trying to find happiness in the world. Happiness in the world, one can find it. There's certainly happy moments in worldly life and success and making a lot of money, traveling to fascinating places, and meeting compatible friends, and on and on like that. So happiness is experienced through these forms, but it's not the nature of the forms themselves. The happiness in that way, a sensual happiness, is impermanent. You can't sustain it. Trying to be happy all the time is impossible in terms of just willful, worldly happiness. 
But what is always present is awareness of happiness when it's present, when it ceases, then it's like this. And in the cessation of conditions, the third noble truth, the Niroda insight, is realized. Where Naroda is, doesn't have a language, it's silent. It's empty, you can say it's empty, but it's also like effulgent, it's full, it's luminous. And so Dhamma is our true refuge. In the teachings of the Buddha, the Four Noble Truths, the Satipatthana and other suttas, they're not doctrinal teachings about belief. But when you really appreciate these teachings established through the Pali texts that are available, is there their directional signs they're pointing to Dhamma here and now, every single one of them. They're not about believing in Buddhas and Devas and Brahmas, the Buddhist cosmology. You're not asked to believe in that. You're not asked to believe that when the Lord Buddha was born, he wasn't born as a Buddha, he was a prince. And he walked on seven lotus leaves right out of his mother's womb. You know, I found that totally impossible to believe. But as legend, it's quite nice. It has a legendary quality and a kind of sense of sanctity and innocence. But this is what you find out for yourself. You're not asked to believe that. One thousand two hundred and fifty arahants assembled. You're not asked, you know, this is just tradition. So the word arahant, what is that? It's a word, another word in the Pali word that we use in English. But can you as a person become an arahant? Do personalities, can they ever become arahants, completely pure and deathless. When you look at your personality, it changes all the time. When you get up in the morning, you're in one mood, and it changes out through the day and night. And personality, whether people praise you or reject you, your personality will change accordingly. Can that desultory personality really attain arahantship? Can you attain a personality that's perfect? These are questions to ask yourself. Did Ajahn Chah attain a perfect personality? Was he a perfect personality of separate person. And then we 
Say, was he an arahant? Well, I've seen, you know, he got very sick at the end. He liked to chew betel nut. And in Western minds, you know, when we're exposed to betel nut chewers, we find it quite disgusting. So one time, I remember at Wat Bapong, a group of American hippies came to visit. So I had to receive them, and they said, Ajahn Chah wasn't Arahant because Arahants wouldn't chew betel nut. And so this is, what kind of opinion is that formed by hippies who've been going around looking at different experiences of life, attaining Arahantship through trying to be a perfect person, separate person. Somebody asked me, does Buddhism have a sign of a completely normal human being? Is there an image of a completely normal human individual? And I said, oh yes, there is. And he said, what is it? It's called an arahant. An arahant then is completely natural, abides in the Dhamma awareness here and now, sati, Dhamma vichaya, here and now, And that's perfect. There's no flaw in that. But can one claim it on a personal level? Anyway, we can. Monks do go around saying they're arahants. But that doesn't make sense to me to say you're an arahant or you're not an arahant because these are words. What is an arahant in ultimate reality? Is it your true nature? When you really trust and abide in awareness, conscious awareness, this you can trust. It's what you really are. It's pure. You never get stained or corrupted, even though on a personal level we can be stained and corrupted. But on the ultimate level, they can't stain or corrupt the Dhamma. And so is Dhamma just another ideal, a kind of abstract metaphysical word that we believe in? Is that what Dhamma is? Or is it apparent here now, every Morning, evening, the chanting, Santiti Kodama, apparent here and now, timeless. Ehi Pasiko, come and see for yourself. Translated, I think, here in Amravati's encouraging investigation. Investigate, find out. Don't linger in the shadows of worldly perceptions, concepts, and ideas. Well, it might be very good or very positive. But even the positive conditions are impermanent. So that's why idealists, who, when you're brought up to live with ideals as your goal in life, you oftentimes end up as a cynic because you find out as you grow older that life is not ideal.
the world, the material world that we identify with is not ideal. And it never will be ideal. Because its nature is to change. So it's ultimate freedom to realize one's true nature. Because for so many of us suffer from identifying with what's totally unsatisfying, looking for satisfaction in the future, or remembering past experiences where we were really happy. You know, we can live in the past. I remember when I was a young man. I remember when I first went to Wat Bapong. Now my memories of Wat Bapong are all positive. When people ask me, I must have really suffered the first year. I can remember that I did, but that's not how I regard that first year. I regard it as being just living a life of a samana, some kind of meaning and purpose and encouragement to investigate conscious experience within the boundaries of the Dhamma Vinaya is a chance of a lifetime, you know, given to an American in a remote part of Thailand, Northeast Thailand, Ubon Rajatani. So for me, the monastic life has always been investigating, using the experiences that I have of praise and blame, success and failure for investigation. I found out my personality is one that needs to be reinforced with affirmations, with appreciation, with smiles, I feel very good as a person when people smile and praise me. And I've been given high-ranking titles in Thailand. I like that. Personally, it's very nice to feel honored and given, given uh, high titles. I have a very, very long name now. <laughs> but then, where I found my weakness is being criticized or rejected. The tremendous fear of being rejected haunted my life from childhood onward. So fear of rejection, fear of being wrong, fear of not fitting in, fear of having no friends, of being jeered at, made fun of, fear of what others think, what the neighbors will say. And that was all conditioning. You know, the personality is based on fear. What do you think of me? What do the neighbors say? So, at this very moment, as I arrived back at the temple, I forgot my sankhati. 
I'm afraid of Ajahn Amaro will, <laughs> will criticize me. I know I wasn't really afraid. <laughs> but it's natural, you know, as a monk, we look at each other and see, are we keeping the Vinaya? And we're so afraid of doing something wrong and being criticized or being looked down on. This is personal. This is personality. So how to relate to that, those events? You know, even though they might not happen that often, be rejected or criticized, when they do happen, it's like this. And that takes forbearance to receive criticism, whether it's justified or not. On the intellectual level, I should accept criticism equal to praise. I should listen to what people are saying and listen to what they're criticizing, whether it's true or false. That's the rational conditioned mind. It's very righteous, good advice. But the reality of being criticized or despised is like this. When it happens, whether it's justified criticism or total nonsense, or kind of an ultra-crepidarian overtake, which means <laughs> a lot of nonsense or exaggeration. But you learn from that. You learn how to endure, forbear, until it ceases. So don't back away from your feelings and trying to justify them or resist them, but use them. The emotional experiences of living here at Amarvati are like this, and you can learn from them. Working in the kitchen, in the retreat center, in the sangha life, and both for the samana community and the lay community. Because you find your freedom lies in not grasping. So when we forbear, when we're patient, things cease. You know, usually we distract ourselves. If we're upset, we can indulge in eating or smoking or drinking or watching television or calling your friends on the phone or doing something, gardening, anything to get away from the unpleasant emotional fears or problems of the moment. But the Buddha is actually encouraging us to witness them, to see the cessation of phenomena as it arises and ceases. And that which is aware of phenomena is not a phenomenon So, conscious awareness is not a phenomenon. It has no beginning or end.
And that's what is apparent here and now. Whatever you're feeling at this moment, whatever you're thinking, consciousness is here and now. Your feelings of the moment are arising according to conditions, and they are what they are. So bondage is the way we've been conditioned. We bind ourselves to imperfection, to the body. Human bodies, all bodies are imperfect. Because they're changing, they get sick, they get old. They become disabled. To identify with it, and that's what we're conditioned to do when we're told. My parents told me to contemplate reality, but to be a good boy and obey mom and dad and don't shame the family and on and on like that. So, you know, right from early age, it was impressed through consciousness of how to behave, to get the praise and the stability of a family that didn't want to be criticized in any way. Didn't ask me to criticize but to obey them and be good boy. So, of course, I tried to obey and be a good boy and when I was young and innocent, and it, you know, it was, my parents were quite benevolent in their character, very good mother and father, But as I grew up, I began to realize that just being a good boy, something was missing, just trying to fit in to society, to not upset the family, to obey the rules, to uh, get the praise and the kind of safe feelings you have when everybody says you're a good citizen, or you're a good boy, or a good girl, and on and on like that. You kind of depend on that for feeling okay about life. But we all come to a point where we realize there's something missing in our lives. That no matter how good we might be, or try to be, and fit in, you know, there's something not quite right about it. Because we caught in binding ourselves to all these rules and regulations without wisdom, without understanding. So in bhavana, or meditation, we are investigating experience. Because experience, it's always here and now. You don't experience the past or the future. The past is about experience that you remember. And that's not an experience, that's just a memory of an experience. The future is an imagination, is what you're planning and what you're hoping to get, or dreading. 
But awareness is always here and now, pure conscious awareness, that we begin to, as you trust it, and investigate experience, how impermanent experience is. Can you really experience conscious awareness? Is that an experience? Is mindfulness an experience? Mindfulness of an object is an experience, like looking at this clock is an experience. But it rises and ceases. So experience is another word that relates to the remembering past experience or hopeful ones in the future or dreading, dreading old age. Having the problems of an old aging body. You know, a sense of my purpose in life is over, I'm an old man, I can't walk very well, and on and on like that we can whinge and moan about how unfair life is. And I remember our past when we were youthful and vigorous. And you get very grumpy when you get old because you're so dependent you need others to help you. You're very dependent on it. And the personality isn't accustomed to that. As a person, you're used to being independent. I can do it. I don't need you. I can take care of myself. Then the mental states, when you're limited, you become disabled and so forth, you tend to grumble about it, about being a nuisance, necessarily wanting to die, get it over with, or maybe fear of dying. But witnessing grumbling, so just witnessing it in my own experience of growing old, It's my refuge, is witnessing, is awareness. And that is non-suffering. Because witnessing, puto tamo sanko, is not meant to be a personal identity. But a pointing to your true identity, which is Dhamma, the nature itself, ultimate reality, the natural world of arising and ceasing of conditioned phenomena. So the Buddhist teachings are all pointing at what's natural, and yet the suffering that we experience is always attachment binding ourselves to what is unnatural, changing, unstable, uncertain. And that's why there's so much fear or grumbling or resentment, misunderstanding why there's a war in Ukraine and American politics is 
endlessly kind of whinging and complaining about right and wrong by politicians because they can be very righteous when they give public talks. But righteousness is also a mental state that arises in ceases. So it's all grist for the mill. It's all part of the bhavanan. Not asking you not to grumble or to complain or to really appreciate everything you're experiencing here in Amravati, but whatever you're experiencing, it's grist for the mill. It's bhavanat. To see it from the puto position, witnessing it is the way it is. And about emotions and feelings, you don't choose them. They arise according to conditions. You don't choose to be offended or angry or jealous. But when the conditions for such emotions arise, and this is what you feel. But awareness is not frightened or jealous or angry. It's pure liberation, not bondage, not binding ourselves to unsatisfactoriness, to what's imperfect. So the real world is not a world that we believe in or have been told to believe in, but the ultimate reality is not a world, it's not a condition, it's not a phenomenon, it's here and now, and this is what you really are experiencing. And as I was asking before, can you experience conscious awareness, mindfulness? Or is that just natural? And so when modern scientists and psychologists try to understand consciousness through defining it or investigating the brain and where does it arise and uh, consciousness is right here and now and, and the scientists are looking for it as an object to actually understand consciousness through words, through concepts, where you don't need words, concepts to be conscious here and now. It's like this. Because the silent sound of silence, this kind of blissful silence is pure, uncritical, and it's the end of suffering. So in Bhavana, in old age, when you grumbling, when the grumbling conditions arise, do I grasp them or, carry them or try to get rid of them or trust in awareness? And they go immediately. They're very impermanent and not self. They're not a separate person that I have to train to not grumble, but Grumbling, complaining, criticizing, fearing, and all this are conditions, are phenomenal, but they're not what any of us are.
So I offer this as a reflection 